This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Forbes Media Chairman Steve Forbes discusses his book, Inflation. He offers his thoughts on what's causing inflation in the U.S. and how to fix it. The monetary kind of inflation results when governments or central banks create too much money and undermine the value of their currency, which leads to uh, all usually rising prices. And that is really the more uh, ominous kind, dangerous kind. He was interviewed by New York Times economics reporter Gina Smilik. Hi, Mr. Forbes. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview. Um, I wonder if we could just start it really broad, because your book obviously is about pressing topic of the day, inflation. And you define inflation a little bit differently in the book than it's traditionally, I think, talked about here in America. And I wonder if you could just go through your definition and how, how it differs from other definitions. Well, really, as we explained in the book, there are two kinds of inflation, uh, non-monetary and monetary. The non-monetary kind, which affects prices, would be an event like such as a drought or the lockdowns that we had during COVID or the war now undergoing in Ukraine, which is affecting food supplies and energy supplies. Those kinds of events can send up prices. We underestimated, for example, with the COVID lockdowns, how intricate those supply chains were and uh, had huge disruptions sending up prices. Those are the non-monetary kind of inflation, though, if uh, the authorities allow it, will eventually work itself out. After World War II, for example, the U.S. economy, we forget it today, underwent a huge transformation from a wartime economy to a peacetime economy, from making tanks to making cars. Those things you don't do overnight. Eventually, the price situation settles down. The monetary kind of inflation results when governments or central banks create too much money and undermine the value of their currency, which leads to uh, all usually rising prices. And that is really the more uh, ominous kind, dangerous kind, because people don't understand why prices seem to be going up for no real reason, and it leads to not only to economic problems, but also political and social problems, as we explain in the book. Okay, interesting. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that differs from, I think, the way that we traditionally talk about inflation, especially sort of in the central banking universe, which is very much as sort of what you described initially, the the shock inflation, that's very much sort of supply side inflation. And then economists typically understand the, you know, the other side of inflation to be very sort of demand pooled, you know, as people are demanding more and going out and shopping, they push up, push up prices, it pushes up prices. And I I wonder how your framing squares with that one? Well, the two kinds of inflation, non-monetary and monetary, can coexist as we're experiencing today. But in a normal economy, if the currency is stable, prices rise and fall because of supply and demand. Uh, Something is popular, the price goes up, or you get productivity gains, prices go down. So those kind of normal signals is what makes, obviously, an economy work, which is why we can do literally billions of transactions here and around the world each day. So I think if you separate the two, monetary and non-monetary, then you can get policy responses that more effectively address both, and uh, you avoid some of the mistakes that we see undergoing now. And unfortunately, we, as we explained in the past, uh, governments uh, for thousands of years, they always blame other forces, they always blame others rather than themselves for, uh, for the mistakes they make on the monetary kind. I wonder, you kind of just alluded to this, but I wonder if you could walk us through what you see as the causes of the 2021 inflation, which is obviously continuing into today. Uh, 
One cause is on the monetary front, the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve, even before the COVID lockdowns, was undermining the value of the dollar. You saw it in rising commodity prices, rising gold prices. So they were brewing trouble even before what happened. Uh, during the lockdowns, obviously, they created a lot of money to try to keep things from uh, collapsing. But unfortunately, in 2021, the Federal Reserve, even as the uh, COVID crisis was the severity was beginning to recede, was still turning out, churning out tons of money. They are buying $120 billion of bonds each month, and they paid for that by creating money literally out of thin air. Now, they employed a gimmick, which we explain in the book, to try to make sure this money didn't flood the economy all at once, but uh, they have created excess amount of money, and they're not even going to uh, stop this money creation. They've announced uh, recently they're going to stop it, but awfully, awfully late in the game. So the Federal Reserve has been uh, creating too much money, undermining the integrity of the dollar, and so you pay a price for that in the dislocations in the economy. You also combine that with we still haven't fully recovered from the lockdowns. Now, you look at China today, uh, recently, for example, those severe, what I think were unnecessary lockdowns, massive lockdowns in Shanghai, perhaps Beijing and other major cities in China, have severely disrupted, once again, supply chains which is going to mean delays, higher prices uh, at the marketplace. So uh, the, uh, the, the non-monetary kind of inflation factors are still there. The Biden administration, unfortunately, is still putting barriers in the way of production of oil and gas, uh, which is raising unnecessarily prices at the pump. And that's not just because economies are recovering. It's also because of a, a lack of supply and uh, putting in regulations on uh, infrastructure. They put in some new rules. They're going to make uh, infrastructure projects even more difficult to get approval for. So all of these things combine together to uh, uh, give us a, an economy that is going to be going into unnecessary trouble. So the Federal Reserve has got to get its act together. The government's got to get its act together in terms of just leaving the economy alone, not putting up these arbitrary barriers. And uh, the amazing thing is, as we've seen in the past, when these policies are in place, by golly, things start to get better. Now, of course, uh, I, I would like to see tax cuts, not tax increases. I think that would help economic output, which also helps to fight rising prices, more supply. But I don't think we're going to get that in the near term. I would love to return to the Fed later, but I, before I do, I just want to continue on this topic a bit. Um, obviously, we saw a lot of spending from the government in response to the, the COVID shock. We saw first the CARES Act and then the $900 billion package under President Trump. And then we saw the American Rescue Plan under President Biden. I wonder to what degree you think that government spending impacted inflation. Well, during the initial uh, COVID lockdowns, uh, obviously something emergency spending had to take place. I don't think anyone would argue with that. But unfortunately, the pace of spending continued into 2021. You mentioned uh, what President Biden did. And so the question then becomes, when you have these uh, uh, spending bills, how do you finance them? And a big chunk of the financing was done, in effect, by the Federal Reserve buying government debt. They don't do it directly. Government uh, auctions the bonds off, dealers buy them, and the dealers turn around and sell them to the to the Fed. And the Fed, and it's important for people to understand how money is actually created in this case. Uh, let's say the Federal Reserve calls up a, a dealer. Let's use Goldman Sachs as an example and say we want to buy, the Fed says we want to buy a billion dollars of government bonds. Uh, Goldman says fine. 
They deliver the bonds. How does the Fed pay for those bonds? They credit uh, Goldman's bank account for $1 billion. Where does that $1 billion come from? Out of thin air. This is the ultimate ATM machine. They just create it out of thin air. And that's what the Fed was doing long past when I thought it was justified. They were doing it in 2021 at a huge pace, keeping interest rates artificially low. And uh, now we're uh, paying for the price for it today. And the question is, can the Fed unwind this in a way without giving us a big recession? Yeah, obviously a very timely topic. We uh, we just recently had a Fed decision in which they announced that they're going to start shrinking those, those bond holdings. I wonder, you know, most economists would say that those those what you just wait the process you just described by which the fed creates money and puts it in the system in order to buy these bonds isn't quite the same as government spending in the sense that a lot of that money basically just sits on on bank balance sheets it doesn't trickle into the economy in the same way and i wonder i wonder what your thoughts are about that because it, it does seem to be the case that there's some debate in the economics community around how inflationary that process really is well, when you have uh, massive amounts of spending and the scale of the spending in this crisis was exceeded anything we've had in uh, peacetime. And so uh, the question then becomes, how do you finance it? And uh, was financed, a big chunk of it was financed by the Federal Reserve, buying those bonds each and every month. And again, creating money out of thin air. So the government spending created pressure for the Federal Reserve to uh, respond by financing it. Otherwise, uh, they, they felt the bonds might not sell in the marketplace, you might have uh, higher interest rates than they wanted, and uh, you would have uh, trouble. So the Fed stepped in and bought those bonds. Uh, at some point, one point during the crisis, in 2021, they were buying over half of the government's new debt, uh, which was unprecedented, that kind of scale of bond buying by the Federal Reserve. So now, uh, as you alluded to, they're starting, they, they say they're going to start to pull back on that, but they're starting at a very, very slow pace. And what the danger with the Federal Reserve right now is they still believe, uh, they, they have this mistaken notion that you fight inflation by depressing the economy. When they talk about soft landing, that's Fed speak for, can we slow the economy down, slow job creation, and avoid a recession? That's what soft landing means. Too often in the past, soft landing in terms of economic terms has meant crash landing, i.e. a full-blown recession. But it's a bogus idea that, you, uh, that the way you fight inflation is by depressing the economy. The way the Fed should do it is keep the dollar stable in value. They did this in a sort of way in the late 1980s and 1990s uh, when Alan Greenspan was the head of the Fed. And he said at the time he was uh, keeping the dollar, trying to loosely tie to gold, loosely tied to commodity indexes, so we had some sort of frame of reference. Unfortunately, in the late 90s, he forgot that frame of reference, and we got the troubles that led to 2008. But the Fed in the past has dealt with the dollar in a more or less semi-correct way in the late 80s and 1990s. But now they seem back to the idea that you have to, have, you have to really slow down economic activity to fight inflation. And I think that just gives us unnecessary trouble. We're going to have problems enough readjusting post-COVID, and the Fed, unfortunately, I think is going to make it much more difficult. 
I'd love to get back to that point about Alan Gre- the Alan Greenspan era because it's an important point in your book. Um, but before we do, I'd like to just finish talking about bond purchases because that's also an important point in your book. I wonder how you sort of square this argument that you're making, which is that Fed bond purchases spur inflation with the reality that we had Fed bond purchases also in very large quantities over the sort of post-financial crisis period, and we didn't see a lot of inflation. In fact, we saw very low inflation over that period. And so I wonder, I wonder how those how those things work together. A very good, a very pertinent question. Because what happened after 2008 was uh, two things. One is the Federal Reserve, while they're uh, creating this money, in effect froze the money. You know, they, I mentioned they, the Fed buys the bonds, they credit the bank account that the dealer has at the Federal Reserve, and what they did was something they'd never done before. They started to pay interest on those reserves. They'd never done that before. At the same time, they were putting pressure on banks to slow down lending. Banks were hiring more after the disaster of 2008, 2009. Banks were hiring more compliance officers than loan officers. So the volume of loans went down even though the reserves went up. So the Fed, in a regulatory manner, was putting pressure on banks. Well, they thought lending was risky, so slow it down. They're paying banks... uh, some uh, interest, to, so the banks are still earning money on that, even though they didn't lend it out. And also you had the banks replenishing, rebuilding their balance sheets. Leading up to 2008, banks uh, got took on too much debt. They did not have enough equity. They did not have enough free, uh, free assets, you might say. And so they had to spend several years, and this is why one of the reasons why the Fed did QE, what they call quantitative easing, was to help the banks replenish their balance sheets. And they had this thing, uh, what they call Basel III, Basel's Switzerland, and the regulators around the world got together and put in capital requirements for banks. They called it Basel III. We're meeting the new requirements under Basel III. So you had a period of time where regulations, regulators didn't want you to be aggressive in lending. They're paying, and they still do today, they're paying interest on the reserves, and banks were rebuilding the balance sheets that had been battered in 2008-2009 because they went overboard in lending before 2008-2009. But it was very clear in 2019 that Basel III requirements were more than fulfilled, banks were brimming with reserves, and so we are heading for trouble even before COVID. And so uh, what you have today is banks are loaded with cash, loaded with reserves. And uh, if lending activity picks up, that is what they call money creation when banks start to lend the money. And that's going to cause, could cause problems in the economy. So we'll see what the Fed does if they try again through regulation, interest rates and the like to try to freeze that money they created to make sure it stays in the deep freeze and doesn't go into the economy. Strange, but that's what they did. Obviously, we have seen quite a pickup in mortgage lending, but aside from that, debt levels have been relatively steady throughout this period. For example, we've seen some uptick in auto loans, but we haven't seen a lot of credit card indebtedness increase. And so I wonder i wonder if you think that this is a problem for tomorrow, if this is something we're going to see play out and it hasn't quite manifested yet, or whether you see signs that this is already happening. Well, I think one of the things that uh, we have to uh, keep an eye on is that as the uh, payments that were made during the COVID crisis, when uh, we wanted to keep people above water because everything was being shut down, you couldn't earn, 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 go, go, go earn money on a job anymore, uh, 
as those as that cash starts to run down, and the savings rate is starting to move down, and people uh, see prices rising up, uh, they and uh, getting less for their wages. As you know, prices are rising at a faster pace than than, than the wages are. Uh, I think you're going to see uh, pressure to for people to be uh, household pressure to be borrowing more. Uh, businesses are going to want to replenish inventories. They're going to want to uh, be borrowing again. So you have this situation where the the uh, distortions created by the COVID lockdowns are going to start to work their way through, and you're going to have a situation where there's a lot of money potentially out there. People are going to start to desire to uh, borrow again. People want to spend again. People want to live a life again. and uh, But they're doing in the headwinds of rising prices, which means they're going to be looking for more cash. Okay, interesting, interesting. And I wonder, you know, you obviously you mentioned earlier the Greenspan era as uh, in the early 90s as a period that you think is worth emulating. I wonder if you could walk through in a bit more detail what you mean by that. Well, during uh, the 1990s, which uh, they called at the time the Great Moderation, uh, the Federal Reserve kept the value of the dollar fairly steady. Interest rates were fairly steady. So you had an economy that uh, was growing. After uh, Bill Clinton came in, yes, he put in tax increases, which slowed things down, but then he put in tax cuts, which uh, people forget today, including a big cut in the capital gains tax. And so uh, the U.S. economy uh, enjoyed a boom after the early 80s, especially in the late 80s and 1990s. Yeah, there are ups and downs, but it was a pretty decent period. So there was stability, relative stability, not perfect, but relative stability in the value of the dollar. And so the economy uh, responded to that. Now, obviously, there are other factors that affect an economy. But the thing to remember is money makes it possible to buy and sell. And so it should have a stable value. You know, when you go buy a pound of cheese, you expect to get 16 ounces. It doesn't float 14 ounces one day, 18 ounces the next. You uh, go buy a gallon of gasoline. Uh, you expect the size of a gallon to be steady. And so uh, an economy works best when money has a, a fixed, a stable value that you know that you're going to get pretty much if you have a dollar today, you lend it out in a year, two years, three years, what you're going to get back is pretty much what you lent out. If you have that kind of instability, you get less productive long-term investment, more speculation, and uh, then you get in trouble. Now, what happened in the late 1990s I don't know whether the Federal Reserve meant to do this or not, but with the Clinton tax cuts and uh, the rise of the Internet, where they kept uh, taxes off and uh, with a, hardly a regulatory of hand at all, uh, you saw the economy boom. Uh, the dollar became desirable, and the Federal Reserve started to tighten up. You saw it in a crash in commodity prices. You saw it in agricultural prices go down. Oil prices went down. And then, uh, so that, uh, that was a mistake. The Federal Reserve tightened when it shouldn't have. Then in the early 2000s, the Fed went in the opposite direction. Oh, we had an official recession. The Fed then went in the opposite direction and weakened the dollar. So suddenly, oil went from $25 a barrel to $100 a barrel. Was that because oil suddenly became scarce and people were using it more? No. It wasn't so much that oil was getting more valuable. The dollar was getting weaker. And uh, when you have that kind of weakening of the dollar, what does that lead to? It leads to people going to hard assets, starting with commodities. And we saw it play out in the disaster in housing 
which uh, came crashing down and led to the crisis of uh, 2007, 8, and 9. It's interesting that you mention oil because obviously that is a market that's very affected by global supply and demand dynamics. And I, I wonder, you know, if, if that, it seems like that would be more the kind of thing that you talked about when you talked about shocks to inflation earlier. But I, I wonder why, why you chose to frame it as more of a money thing in this case. Well, oil uh, or any uh, commodity, uh, the price will change if uh, people want more of it or people want less of it. But when you get these violent changes in price, even though the, the economies hadn't much changed, then you know you've got a currency problem. Now go back to the 1970s, during the great inflation of the 1970s, which we discuss in the book. Oil was about $3 a barrel up and down throughout the 60s. Then when the inflation started, we had several rounds of it during the 70s and early 80s, the price of oil went from roughly $3 a barrel to almost $40 a barrel. And people talked about, oh, we must be running out of it. We need to invest more in it. You saw in terms of hard assets, you saw farmland prices zoom up because uh, it was a hard asset. You saw commodity prices go up. And then when the inflation was ended in the early 1980s, what happened? Oil crashed from $40 a barrel around 10 or 12 dollars a barrel finally settled at 2025 so you had a depression in the 1980s in texas the rest of the economy was doing fairly well but texas was in a virtual depression because of the crash in the energy industry you saw the farm belt experience the same thing iowa which had been a red state uh, went uh, democratic in 1988 because of the distress in the farm belt farmers going broke because they had borrowed the land prices were going up they are uh, they're they're the prices for their crops are going up, and suddenly uh, the prices crashed, and they are left with a lot of debt. And one of the things that happened in the farm belt since was when you had another commodities boom as a result of the weakening dollar, uh, most farmers were very careful this time not to take on debt because they remembered what had happened before. So prices, this is like, inflation in this sense is like a virus in a computer. It distorts the information. Prices are supposed to tell you what people want, what people don't want. And uh, if, you, if, a, if the price is telling you, giving you false information, like, oh, oil is suddenly very valuable, then you get uh, the money misallocated, capital misallocated, and you end up with the kind of uh, tears that you had in the 80s in the oil patch, and uh, they went through a hard time after 2012. So, again, stability is good. So you want prices to be set by people buying and selling in the marketplace, not because of changes in the value of the dollar. I think that practically all mainstream economists attribute the 70s and 80s oil experience in large part to the embargoes that were happening with OPEC and really just extremely constrained supply during the 70s that bound, rebounded during the 80s. And I wonder how you think about that supply side of the dynamic. Well, this, again, is uh, one of the things we point out is that prices are a symptom of inflation. They're not the cause. They're a result of when you have, in this case, a monetary inflation. And so uh, uh, the Arab uh, OPEC made very clear in the early 70s. They said if you uh, continue to have this devaluing dollar, prices are going to go up. And so, again, it wasn't so much that oil suddenly became more valuable or OPEC suddenly became more powerful you had a greatly weakening dollar. So everyone, and then we made, uh, we, we made the situation worse in the U.S. 
by putting on price controls, and so uh, which distorted the market. So we had these lineups where you'd wait two hours to get five gallons of gasoline. You'd have alternate days where you're allowed to buy gas depending on the number of your license plate and stuff like that. So uh, the mistake of devaluing the dollar and then the controls they put in turned a bad situation into a disaster. But again, when the dollar was finally stabilized somewhat in the early 80s, you saw oil prices come down. And while they focus on oil, copper prices went up when oil was going up. And there was no OPEC in copper. Uh, aluminum prices, other prices were going up. And there was no uh, equivalent of OPEC. And if OPEC was so powerful, why, why, why weren't they able to control prices after the 1970s? So the distortions you saw in the oil market in the 70s were a result of a weak dollar, not suddenly OPEC or a huge surge in demand for oil. Right, but there was less supply for oil in the 70s, or do you disagree? Do you, do you have other data? Well, in, in the 1970s, uh, there wasn't some sudden shortage of oil. What you find is when a currency weakens, and we walk you people through in the book, uh, when, 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 when you have that kind of a distortion, people will do some anticipatory buying because they figure they won't be able to get it. And we see sort of that play out a little bit during the COVID lockdowns. Suddenly people feel, oh, uh, we're not going to be able to get uh, paper towels. We're not going to be able to get this. We're not being able to get that. And so you have anticipatory buying. So you get an artificial surge, which then when things calm down, uh, play out. So that's what you saw in the 70s was uh, not so much supply and demand. Uh, you, what you, and, and oil is an international market. And so when they said, oh, we won't sell oil to the U.S., uh, there are plenty of other. So you'd sell it through Holland and then they would sell it to us. The, the oil flows where the demand is. So oil suddenly, again, in the 1970s, did not suddenly become more valuable but on a scale of 12 to 13, going from three bucks to 38 almost $40. It wasn't surge of value of the oil. It was the weakening of the dollar. And when the weakening stopped, oil went tumbling down dollar prices. Okay. I think it is important to note for viewers that there was some constrained supply in the, in the 70s. But I'd like to move, move back, actually, to the and, and a lot And a lot of the constraint, some of the constraint, was, again, price controls put on. When Reagan took off the price controls in the early 1980s, uh, investment flowed, and uh, by golly, uh, you got more oil and you got a lot of lower prices. So <laughs> a stable dollar, more supply, kaboom, <laughs> and if you're like, in the oil patch. I'd like to, Promoters was great. <laughs> I'd like to move back to the, the Greenspan era because you do talk about it quite a lot in the book, and you talk about it very much in the context of you know stable prices being essential. Um, Obviously, in the Greenspan era, though, and in the early 90s, we still had some inflation. It sort of hovered in the 2 to 4% range, which is relatively similar to what we've seen, you know, for, for much of the decade prior to the pandemic, actually a bit higher. Um, and I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you square with that with the idea that it would be better to have no inflation at all. Well, in terms of, uh, again, the, this is where you have to make a distinction between non-monetary and monetary inflation. Uh, what you, uh, uh, Paul Volcker, who in the early 1980s headed up the Federal Reserve and uh, killed the terrible inflation at a very high cost that had been afflicting us in the 70s, because in the 70s they'd fight it, uh, not fully kill it, then it would come back worse than before. 
So uh, we went through a very grim period in the early 80s to finally uh, stop it once and for all. And uh, he rolls, uh, we did an interview with him a couple of years ago, and he, uh, four years ago, and he would roll his eyes at the idea that 2% inflation is good. In terms of the stability of the dollar, you want, you don't want inflation or deflation, you want flation. Now, this is a very subtle point. You may get prices going up because of supply and demand. For example, uh, a hotel room in Cambodia, a very poor country, is going to be a lot cheaper than a hotel room, say, in Singapore, a very prosperous country. When a country becomes more prosperous and people's salaries are going up in real terms, they not only start to buy more things, but they're going to uh, want more services. For example, take somebody who cuts hair, a barber. Uh, a barber, if, if, if a country becomes more prosperous, a barber is not going to uh, continue to uh, uh, be accepting, as you saw in the 1970s, $2 for a hair, or let's say in the early 80s, $4 for a haircut. Uh, you're not going to get the labor, so you're going to pay the barber more because the general prosperity is going up. And so that's not, that, that, that is just supply and demand and people buying more things. And this gets to one of the flaws of, of, of price indexes, is they often don't really keep up with the changes when you have more services coming online, you have more products coming online. The whole rise of the Internet, the whole rise of iPhones, cell phones. You take, for example, the original cell phone in the early 1980s coming out of Motorola, uh, cost $3,950. You had a battery, battery that lasted about an hour, as big as a, uh, the, the, the phone was as big as a shoebox and weighed like a brick. Now today you have devices, even though they may cost uh, 800 500 1300 depending on the model, that are virtual supercomputers, way beyond voice. That's awfully hard to calculate in a, in a consumer price index, uh, whether that is really going up in price or down in price. You look at the typical automobile today, and the shortage of the microchips emphasizes that vehicle today is infinitely more complex and does more and more things than the car you would have bought, say, in the 1970s or the 1980s. So uh, those, those kinds of things. So you may, depending on how you put your consumer price index up and what you put in it, may go up 1% or 2%. But that's very different from a currency losing value. So uh, the key thing is, again, keep the dollar steady in value. Prices will go up and down depending on supply and demand, or if you get a drought or something like that. But these things will work themselves out. And so in terms of a consumer price index, you could make a case that if you had stability, you might go down a little bit, not because of a depressed economic activity, but because of productivity, as we now see in the, in the handhelds. Interesting. And you make a big point in the book of arguing that we shouldn't be aiming for really any inflation over time. It, the Fed obviously has a 2% inflation target, so they do prefer a little bit. And they, when they explain that 2% inflation target, they often use basically the logic you just laid out, which is that over time, as the economy evolves, you're going to want to pay a little bit more in wages. And as companies pay more in wages, they're going to need to charge a little bit more so that they don't destroy their profit margins. And so a little bit of inflation is basically like grease on the gears of well, the economy, is the phrase they'll often use. And I wonder, I wonder if you could walk us through your argument of why you think that's, that's not the right way to think about things. Well, it, it, it's manipulating a measure of value. Uh, we have 60, let's take an hour. 
60 minutes in an hour. Uh, if the Fed was in charge of the Time Bureau, I could see them making the case inside. Gee, if we gradually increase the number of minutes an hour from 60 to 61 or 62, look what that would do to productivity. People would be working longer at the same wages. And you say, that's ridiculous. An hour should be an hour. And uh, people would start to notice uh, something strange going on. The same thing. Money is a measure. This is something we emphasize in the book. Money is supposed to be a measure of value. Uh, when, when, when you go to a restaurant, what do you get? You get a coat check, piece of plastic or piece of paper. In and of itself, worthless. But it's a claim on a real product. You buy a ticket to an event, whether it's ellipses on your handheld or a paper ticket or whatever. It's a claim on a real service, a real event. Money is like claim checks. You get it for working or selling something or whatever, and then you are able to go out and use it to purchase something you want. So you don't. So the idea that if you manipulate the value of what you earned, somehow can gin up the economy, it never works. And one thing to keep in mind is that when you think manipulating money, whether it's low inflation or high inflation, is the way to wealth, no country becomes a colossus with unstable money. And you look at, uh, for example, we point out for 180 years, and uh, economists hate to hear this, but for 180 years, the U.S. was largely on a gold standard till the early 1970s. And uh, post-World War II, they put in a thing called the Bretton Woods International Monetary System. You can look it up on, uh, online. And uh, the dollar was fixed to gold at 35 an ounce. All that meant was if it uh, went above 35, They'd reduce the money supply. If it went below 35, they'd increase it. They'd, keep, they'd try to keep it stable in value. During that period of time, the U.S. average growth rate was 4.2% from the late 40s to the late 60s. And since we've had this era of relatively unstable money since the early 1970s, the average rate has gone down to 2.7%. Now, I hate to use numbers like that, but you think, well, yeah, it's a little less, but not that much. But you compound that slower average growth of the last 50 years compared to the previous growth we had for 180 years. You compare that average growth and compound it, and you realize over time it has been devastating. The median household income today is roughly about $67,000, depending on how you measure it, but the number they widely use is 67000 if we had had normal economic growth rates, that, that nominal, that income, that uh, median household income would be $100,000 to $110,000. That's over 50 years. I think most people would say, gee, we'd love an economy today where we're earning twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 more with stable prices. That's the long-term cost. And the thing is, money is how we relate to strangers. I don't have to know you, but we can do a transaction together. We can put a business complex supply chains with people we don't even know by using something trustworthy like stable money. And when money starts to change in value and people don't understand why it is changing in value, why their dollars aren't going as far as they should be, where suddenly speculation, as Paul Volcker pointed out, suddenly seems to be a way to get ahead rather than honest work, it's debilitating in society and leads to social problems. And uh, countries that repeatedly play with their money, devalue their money, 
are more violent societies. They have more crime. We point to Brazil. Now, Brazil in the last couple of years has tried to stabilize its currency, but it's been notorious for decades. Look at the crime there. Terrible. So you get less social trust. You get more lawlessness when you have unstable money. And uh, there was a book written about uh, the German hyperinflation in the early 20s, which made possible, helped make possible the rise of Adolf Hitler when they destroyed, completely destroyed their currency. Uh, a book called When Money Dies pointed out that before that hyperinflation, Germany was probably the most law-abiding uh, country on earth. Everyone obeyed the rules. Then with the hyperinflation, suddenly that went by the boards because you were a sucker if you played by the rules because you were going to lose. And so you had more lawlessness, you had more people cheating, people not looking to the future, just living for the moment. It was debilitating to civil society. And that was a hyperinflation. But you can get, over time, a gradual undermining of social trust. It's not as dramatic as what happened in Germany or what you see in Venezuela today, but it's still debilitating. And it, so it's not just an economic thing on prices and stuff like that. It's also about how we interact with one another, how we trust each other, and something the economists don't pay enough attention to, but they should because it has real consequences in the fabric of a society when you have unstable money. I have so many follow-up questions on what you just said, but I'll, I'll start with sort of one that zeroes in on the point you just made about falling growth rates. I think the mainstream economic argument for why growth rates have fallen over the last 30, 40 years very much centers on the aging of the population. You know, when you have a younger population, people are working more and people are buying more. They're buying houses, they're having kids. And as, as people age, you have less of that activity and the economy naturally slows. I think the second thing people sort of talk about is this idea that a lot of the low-hanging fruit when it comes to macroeconomic development has already happened here because we went through the Industrial Revolution, we went through the era of interconnection, we went through globalization. All those things were very good for you know, the economy, but those, those things have happened and you can't do them again. I think Robert Gordon, who wrote a book on this, uh, one of the things he says in it is you can't reinvent the washing machine. Uh, and so that, that's sort of that idea. And I wonder, I wonder how yeah. you square that sort of mainstream narrative about what has happened with growth with the one you just laid out. Well, the thing about uh, talking about economic growth in the future is you can't see the future. No one uh, in the early 1990s, maybe you could have them on one hand, could lay out the implications of the rise of the Internet. Imagine if you could bring somebody back from the dead who died in the 1980s and try to explain the Internet. You would have a hard time doing it. They couldn't comprehend it unless they live with it. And so nobody foresaw the rise of uh, Google. Nobody saw the rise of a, a Facebook. And so uh, to say, well, at the, at the time, well, everything has been invented. You find in every era people who say, well, the low fruit is all gone, the easy inventions are over, and now we're in a period of consolidation. When the Great Depression hit, you had a lot of economists, including President Franklin Roosevelt, who gave a speech on it in San Francisco when he was running for president in 1932, saying the age of great enterprise of big new inventions and uh, new corporations and blah, blah, blah are over. It's a period of management and consolidation. Well, the economy of 1932 bears no resemblance to the economy, vibrant economy, multitudinous economy we have today. You can't foresee what people are inventing. 
And even during the 1970s, during that great inflation of the 1970s, look what was happening below the surface of things. Uh, FedEx was being invented. Amgen was being invented. Apple was being invented. Microsoft was being invented. Oracle was being invented. Uh, Southwest Airlines, all of these things that nobody saw at the time uh, were rising up. And FedEx created a whole new industry. And uh, the rise of uh, the PCs created a whole new industry. Nobody foresaw that in the 1960s uh, like that or what it would do to a mainframe computers. So these people say, well, we're in a period where all the inventions are over. No way. There are people out there working in garages and elsewhere who are coming up with things we can't even imagine, especially, especially in health care. The government doesn't smother health care. You're seeing a lot of research. I hope uh, I'm in an age where I'd like some of these breakthroughs to happen, where in combating diseases, some major big things are in the offing. So people's inventiveness, if you have an open environment and allow it, is endless coming up with things that other people didn't foresee. There's a book uh, a few years ago about uh, Musk and the rise and others, the rise of PayPal. Credit card companies and banks at the time when that was starting, didn't, they could have crushed it. And the, and, and the early uh, uh, participators were wondering, why didn't these big guys come in and crush it? Because the big guys didn't see what they were doing and realize the implications of what they're doing. So even though PayPal stock has taken a hit, it's still worth over $100 billion. And none of the incumbents at the time, 30 years ago, uh, 25 years ago, foresaw what PayPal would do. And you have that going on all the time if you have a free economy. People, things people never have thought of. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess, I wonder how you square that with what we see in sort of the international context, which is very much the case that as companies, de- countries develop, as they sort of move up the industrialization ladder, and as their population growth slows, their growth does tend to slow. I think China, you know, obviously is a very obvious example that we've all probably watched happen within our lifetimes. It really went from being sort of a double-digit growth economy to moderating down towards 6%. And I, I wonder how you square that sort of global experience where it does seem like the mainstream story basically checks out and, and what you're arguing. Well, what, what, what uh, I think the, the, the point being made is, one is, yes, it's one thing for a country to grow, catching up, you might say, but also, even though we have deep, deep, real problems with China today, very serious strategic problems with China, uh, for a while before Xi Jinping came along, uh, you had not only catching up in China, but they allowed remarkably, as long as you didn't get involved in politics, allow high-tech entrepreneurs to flourish. And so China became rather inventive. And uh, so it wasn't just catching up. And uh, that's the key thing. It's not just taking what's there and saying, well, we're not there, but in five years we'll be where everyone else is. It's that you have constant change and innovation. That what we accept as normal today looks obsolete and silly tomorrow. And so in the United States, because of massive regulations and other mistakes we've made, we haven't been creating new businesses on the scale that we traditionally did. I think uh, that'll change in the next few years. I think we're going to create an environment where that kind of flourishing will happen again. And so, again, people are always looking to do things better. People are always coming up with ideas. Most of them fail, but some of them really stick and profoundly change our lives. And uh, just, to, just to go back on that a little bit, I remember in the early 1980s when PCs first came along, people were wondering, oh, that's very interesting. What are they good for? 
you know, keeping track of your recipes in the kitchen, uh, making typing easier. They had no conception, especially when you start to network these machines, what it would do. Nearly put IBM in the early 1990s in the, in the, in the corporate graveyard. They're now back in a very vibrant company. But no one foresaw, uh, most people didn't foresee what these devices, which look like they're just playthings for hobbyists, what they would actually do in terms of profoundly changing our lives, where everyone today, even if you're utterly technically ignorant, and this is the virtue of free markets, you can operate a super, what's equivalent of a few years ago, what have been a supercomputer. We just take it for granted. It's amazing. Interesting, interesting. Now, obviously, in the book, you talk quite a bit about going back to the gold standard as a solution to the current inflation. And I wonder if you could just sort of lay out your argument there. Well, uh, all, all, all the gold standard is, and there are various kinds of it which we touch on, is that you, uh, for a variety of reasons, gold keeps an intrinsic value better than anything else on Earth and has for 4,000 years. Uh, not perfect, but better than anything else. So when you tie your currency to, say, gold, all it means is it doesn't restrict your money supply, we point out from 1775 to 1900, uh, from 1775 when we started this uh, national uh, experiment, uh, the money supply in this country, as best we can figure out, went up 160-fold. And, uh, and, and yet the dollar was fixed to gold. The gold supply only went up three or four times. All that gold is like a, a yardstick, a measuring tool. Like a clock measures time, a scale measures weight, gold and money measure value. So when you keep it to a, at a fixed rate, whether it's, uh, it used to be 35, how long ago that was, but pick a rate today, 1,800, 2,000, all that means is that the, the dollar will stay relatively stable in value. So let's, let's for simplicity's sake, let's pick 2,000 because it's a round number. So if, uh, if, if you're creating too much money and the gold price starts to move up above 2000 that's a signal you're creating too much money. If it goes below 2000 for a while, it's a signal you're not creating enough money. Again, no monetary system is perfect, but over the span of history, you've never had an inflation when you've had a gold standard. And the U.S. had 180 years from 1790s when Alexander Hamilton and George Washington put us on a gold standard. They fixed it to gold and they used to put in silver in that, those days, too. We had a gold standard from the 1790s and the 1970s. The U.S. experienced, even though we had civil war, depressions, world wars, the average growth rate was the highest in human history. Now, obviously, there are other factors, but the key thing is... Money makes it possible for people to invest in the future, take more risk, have more trust in, the, in, in, uh, in their day-to-day -day activities, and over time, the results are astounding. When you look at where we began, and we didn't invent it, the Dutch did it back in the 1580s and became the global center of the world. The English, which were a second-tier nation in the 1690s, early 1700s, went on the gold standard and did other positive things. They became the center of the world. Alexander Hamilton, we, we took it another step, and we became the capital center of the world and the largest economy in the world. But a country can get the regulations right, the spending right, uh, the taxes right, but if you don't get the money right, you are going to have problems because money, again, is not wealth in and of itself. It's a measure of value, and that's what I wish our central bankers would understand. 
You don't muck around with clocks. You don't muck around with scales. Uh, you, you, you shouldn't muck around with the value of money. I would love to drill down on the, the point you just made, actually, because as our viewers may be familiar with, in the, you know, we were on some variety of a gold standard, sometimes a gold and silver standard for much of the post-revolution period up through up through Bretton Woods, but we left it pretty regularly. I think for a good example is during the Civil War, we basically completely abandoned the gold standard. The uh, union printed greenbacks and vastly expanded the money in circulation. And, you know, obviously there was there was inflation after the Civil War. But I guess I, I wonder, you know, that did happen repeatedly. And I wonder how you see a gold standard working in the modern era. What what would make it... The, re- the reason we left the gold standard ultimately is because we couldn't defend it, because it, we could not expand the money supply to meet demand, basically. And I, I wonder what you think has changed. Why would we be able to do a gold standard today when, when we used to leave it repeatedly in the past? Yeah. Uh, let me hit two things on that. Yes, periodically the U.S. left a gold standard. You mentioned the Civil War. But it was always understood that after the war you would go back to it. So Civil War, we went off it. And during war times, big wars, everything goes by the board. You do everything you can to survive, especially a total war. Civil War, two world wars. And so uh, peacetime finance goes by the boards. Everything focuses on winning the conflict. And post-conflict, you try to reestablish what you had before and get back to normal and move ahead. That's what we did after the Civil War. I think they made some mistakes in the transition, but it was done. That's what we did after World War I. That's what we did after World War II. Uh, sometimes you get a devaluation uh, arbitrarily. Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, thought uh, helping get out of the Depression in 33, 34 to devalue the dollar, which he did. It ultimately didn't do much good. We were still mired in a terrible economic troubles. But... Uh, but uh, for the most, for what was understood during that 180-year period, even though you may have a crisis or a war, you eventually would go back on it. Britain, for example, I mentioned Britain earlier, during the Napoleonic Wars in the 1790s to the, uh, around 1815, uh, Britain was off the gold standard because they were fighting a, what was then qualified as a world war, certainly a continental war, for their existence. But after the war was understood, you would uh, make the transition back onto a gold standard. After World War I, and this is another subject for another time, Britain botched it. They made huge mistakes. But uh, it was always understood, certainly in this country, you'd eventually return to gold. Now, in the early 1970s, we went off of it, not because of any existential crisis, but because of fallacious economic and political thinking. Uh, they, uh, they, 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 uh, the, peop- the U.S. was not pursuing monetary policy in the way it should to keep the dollar fixed at $35 an ounce. If they had just sold bonds, bought bonds to keep that $35 an ounce thing, there wouldn't have been a crisis. So why did they go off of it? They thought uh, Nixon and his Treasury Secretary, Connolly, and others in the profession thought, gee, uh, you can have a devaluation of the dollar. That'll help stimulate the economy. We were in a mild recession in 69 and 70. There's an election coming up in 1972, and as politicians are wont, they think that's the most important thing in history. So they closed the gold window, put in wage and price controls uh, as a way to uh, goose the economy and win the election. Well, Nixon won the election, but by taking the U.S. off of gold and not returning uh, with the devaluation, the dollar sank like a stone. 
countries went on, had chaos. Uh, you had uh, the terrible inflation of the 1970s, and, uh, but they didn't have to go off of it. It was a political decision and, and, and false economic thinking to think you can let your currency go up and down like a stock. It's like saying the number of minutes should float up and down or the number of ounces in a pound should go up and down. No! It's supposed, you're supposed to have fixed, fixed weights and measures. And that's their big mistake. And it was unnecessary. And we've been paying the price for it ever since. So to win an election, we destroyed a system. We didn't realize the full implications of it. And I think someday, I think I'll, and I think I'll live to see it, uh, we're going to realize Alexander Hamilton, George Washington had it right. The old Brits had it right. The old Dutch had it right. And we'll go back to stability. And you'll see this country confound those who say, we're in an era of slowness, all the great inventions are over, there's going to be stuff coming along, whether it's software kind of thing or whether it's uh, fighting diseases uh, that are going to astound us. And, uh, but we do, get, we do get spoiled by it. I mentioned a handheld, you know, which is a miracle. So if you place a call to a goat herder in outer Mongolia, it takes longer than six seconds to connect. You say, what a piece of crap this is. You know, we, we just take for granted these great breakthroughs. But the great, great, great breakthroughs will come. But to answer your question about the early 70s, that was totally unnecessary. They botched it. They didn't have a crisis to justify it. Interesting, interesting. And in the book, I, I want to make sure we hit this point because I think people will be interested in sure. it. In the book, you dig into a little bit this idea that cryptocurrency might be a reasonable alternative to gold. And I wonder if you could walk through your thoughts on that. Well, uh, cryptos, I don't think, will be an alternative to gold, although some may see it as a speculative vehicle. And we make the point that uh, cryptos, the kind of crypto we think of as, take Bitcoin, that is so volatile in value, you cannot use it as money. Imagine if several years ago you uh, took out a mortgage. Let's say you took out a $250,000 mortgage on your house and you did it in Bitcoin. You'd probably owe the bank 10 or $20 million, $30 million today. That instability is not money. That is a speculative vehicle. The real miracle of, uh, of uh, the cryptos is uh, what they're creating in terms of uh, technology, blockchain. Blockchain technology, I think, in the next uh, uh, 10 years is going to profoundly change the whole payment systems we have. Again, another subject for another time. But what we think you should watch for on what's happening with cryptos is what is a class called stable coins, which are growing in popularity. A stable coin, uh, crypto, is tied to a specific asset, whether gold or the dollar or basket of commodities, but it's tied to something. So you have stability and value. I think as technology evolves and it becomes easier to use uh, cryptocurrencies for commercial transactions and ultimately easy and trusting where you can use these things to write long-term contracts, which you wouldn't dare do today because I mentioned what happened with Bitcoin, you're going to see in coming years you're going to see stable coins become an alternative to government currencies. And that's why, for example, Turkey, which has had a terrible time in the last year with its currency, banned stable coins because they saw it as a threat to the Turkish lira. I think you're going to see in coming years a real regulatory political battle coming with uh, stable coin cryptos 
versus government money. And uh, that's going to be very interesting to watch. But that's where, on the money side, is, I think you're going to see the real surge is going to be with stable coins, where people say, I trust that more than I do my central bank. And in a country like Venezuela or some of these other countries, I think that's going to have a lot of appeal. That's an interesting point. You also, I want to make, we don't have a ton of time left, so I want to make sure that we talk about this. You have a section in your book where you talk about what you think, where you think people can invest to sort of weather the current inflation. And I wonder if you could just sort of walk through your bigger points there. You know, what, what is your advice in this moment of inflation? Well, uh, we begin, uh, we talk in the book that uh, we, at Forbes, we ran a cover story back during the terrible inflation of the 1970s. And, uh, and uh, the cover was, uh, was a come on, uh, how you can prosper with inflation. And then we went, and then we, uh, how, how you can fight inflation. So when we got into the story, we revealed, we got honest in the first sentence and saying, there's no way you're going to fully, most people can fully protect themselves from inflation. It's going to hit everyone. But there are things you can do, uh, whether it's uh, buying, you know, whether it's uh, stores that uh, deal in bargains, but whether it's hard assets, uh, whether it's uh, real estate, uh, farmland, forest land, or things like that. You look for companies. And this takes work. There's no easy way to do this, but this takes work where you try to find companies that have a history of good cash flow. One of the things that's going to happen now that the Fed is raising interest rates is that a lot of companies that were surviving because they could get no, virtually no interest loans or bonds or very low interest loans, they're going to be choking when those rates go up. So you're going to have, unfortunately, some carnage on the field coming soon with that. But in terms, but in terms of uh, investing, you've got to do the work. What companies have good cash flows? You want several of them. What companies have a history of raising dividends, not just a dividend today, but where you can look forward to maybe getting more might help you keep up with inflation. And uh, we, 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 we walk people through that. But again, you have to do real homework. For example, in commercial real estate, uh, there are some cities you could make a case, uh, like in New York or San Francisco or wherever, where there might be overbuilding of commercial real estate. You don't want to do that. So there's good real estate and, not, and real estate you want to avoid. And so uh, you can do some of these things, and uh, you should have some gold, just not as an investment, but as an insurance policy, like uh, homeowner's insurance or auto insurance in case of an accident. You want it as, as an insurance policy. And we walk through whether it's better to own the coins, I think it is, rather than a mining company. But then we talk about there are certain companies that deal in royalties that you might want to look at. And the other thing to keep in mind is, is that what works during an inflationary period probably won't work during a non-inflationary period. So you have to be ready to be nimble. You have to be on the lookout. It doesn't look like the government is really serious about getting this thing under control, and it knows what it's doing, which the Fed doesn't know what it's doing today. And then you're going to have to change, because as we mentioned earlier, uh, oil, which was a big, wonderful thing in the 1970s, and farmland were disasters in the 1980s. So what worked in one era doesn't necessarily work in another era. So you have to do work, you have to be nimble, and realize you're dealing with forces that ultimately are beyond your control. It's humbling, but that's what the authorities have done to us.
Okay, interesting. And then you have, a, I think, what is a pretty provocative line in the book, as I say, as somebody who covers the Fed and monetary policy. Um, so I, I wonder if you could expound a little bit on, on what you mean, and maybe we can, make, we can make this our final topic. But you say, and I, I'm quoting from page 130, there is no such thing as price stability, even do- during times of little or no inflation. And obviously, we know that the Fed's mandate is price stability. So I, I wonder what you mean by that. Well, uh- this, uh, this is gets to prices in a normal marketplace, and that is prices are always changing because people's preferences are changing, new products or improvements come along, so prices fluctuate. Uh, they don't stay uh, flat. Uh, you, t- you look at a typical house today versus a typical house uh, 30, 40 years ago, very, very different. Certainly going to need more electrical outlets or more juice than you might have had in the past. So those kinds of, so you're always going to get those kind of price fluctuations. People might like a new fancy shoe or whatever. So that price will fluctuate or they may turn away from something. That price may crash. So uh, perfect. And, and then how you, how you measure what is price stability. Uh, the, the, these indexes, they have different kinds, which tells you something. There's no one kind of index. They think it's very science producer price index and blah, blah, blah. But consumer preferences are always changing, especially as new stuff comes along that looks like it's exotic and expensive today and then becomes a commonplace tomorrow. How many people could survive today without a handheld? Twenty years ago, you had games where how many days could you go without your uh, cell phone, as we call them then? And you could go maybe two or three. But today, you have to have it with you all the time. So these things are always changing, and there's no way... Governments either can anticipate those changes because nobody can foresee the future. I don't know what the next Steve Jobs is doing or is going to come up with. And, uh, and uh, so uh, governments can't foresee the future, and it's very hard to even measure what people are doing today. Okay. A little humility would be in order on part of all of us. We will, we will uh, <laughs> end, on a, end, end on a humble note then, I guess, because we are, we are all done. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's a really, really interesting topic. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts.